Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Welcome. It is another beautiful day here. It's officially summer, um, at least in the part of the world that we find ourselves. Um, I don't know what the weather has been like where you're at, but like, like beautiful 90s. Uh, you know, we swam all day yesterday at my in-laws place. So uh, feeling pretty good. Um, that has nothing to do with the topic of discussion today. But you know, it sort of situates where we are in time and space. Um, today's topic speaking of time and space, uh, is about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly, last week, Lucas and I did an episode on uh, the passage of Zacchaeus in in Luke's gospel, where it's not entirely clear if Jesus is the short one or if Zacchaeus is the short one. And I think I happened to make this like just offhand comment that, you know, people have thought about this, this idea that Jesus is short and one of the ways in which some people have deduced Jesus's perhaps even exact height is using this shroud. Um, if you're somebody who believes that the Shroud of Turin is actually the, you know, the burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth, um, then it would make sense that if we're able to d- determine the height of the Shroud Man, then we can determine that Jesus, in fact, was five foot five or five foot seven or whatever height you wish to imagine. So... I think I joked to Lucas, like, oh, we should do an episode, or not joked, but I, I I mentioned to Lucas, we should do an episode on the Shroud of Turin sometime. Well, a week later, here we are talking about the Shroud. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting artifact, a really interesting piece of not only history, but I think Christian theology in a way, and Christian history. And so we thought, you know, we, we like dabbling in some of these weirder, tangential, uh, topics and ideas, and this was one that fit the bill. So, Lucas, going to kick it over to you. Um, why don't you tell us where we want to be going here? What What is the Shroud? Um, how did it become associated with Jesus? Things like that. Well, uh, a lot of people have probably seen it like a picture of or like an image of the Shroud. Um or if not, at least have heard of the idea of it. So the idea, or or the you know the the claim is that this is the burial cloth, or one of the burial cloths, or however you'd say it, um, that Jesus's body was wrapped in, and that were left in the tomb behind when uh, he walked out of the tomb after his resurrection, and sort of, it, it's difficult to to. Like, not that I've seen this in person, of course, but but from what I've heard and read, like, it's difficult to, to know the exact word, but sort of imprinted or, you know, like, yeah, I'll go with imprinted onto this very old piece of cloth is what seems to be the image um, of a human person, uh, especially you can sort of make out the face and there are some you know some some stains and some spots that that look like blood stains that may or may not match up with where you might imagine um i mean of course you know jesus's <laughs> wounds were pretty 
all over by the time he was he was done um, suffering and then being crucified. So you know, it's it's not I'm not necessarily saying he only had you know one or two wounds that we would expect to see blood you know coming from. But the point is, there's this shroud where where inexplicably, uh, you know, basically um, there there is the imprint of a human face of of a human body. And so the idea is that because Jesus' body was wrapped in this shroud, in this cloth, when he was resurrected, this miraculous sort of supernatural, supernatural event had, had a, a physical byproduct, you might say, of imprinting however we want to say it his image onto the the cloth that was wrapped around and in contact with his you know dead and then (laughs) resurrected body um in, in you know in the in the act of resurrection or the or the moment of his body being resurrected there was some kind of some some aspect of that event resulted in this um imprintation or whatever um of his of his you know not picture so like it's not a photograph but but his his image being on the shroud and so as a result this shroud is and has been for centuries and centuries venerated and um held in honor and you know prayed before and um treated as a relic of christ himself so that's sort of that's sort of the gist if you've never heard of yeah. it of what the shroud of turin and turin not because jesus was in turin but because that's where the shroud is <laughs> um, which yeah it's yeah. A, a thing of history what what's so interesting is like like it makes sense if some like i'm trying to just picture if somebody's buried someone's passed away has been buried wrapped in a cloth right like yeah especially if it's someone who died a horrific gruesome death such as jesus you know jesus had a crown of thorns twisted onto his head um he's got lacerations you know from flogging on his back bruises i'm sure like his side was pierced with a spear so yeah you wrap somebody up who's experienced all those things of course there's going to be the passage of you know blood and sweat maybe and other you know whatever so like it makes sense that if you found a burial cloth that it would contain those things but what makes this different and unique is that that it's almost as if a picture has been ingrained into the very fabric of the shroud itself that's what like sort of like sets it apart makes it different makes it unique from any other burial cloth so yeah and you you don't you don't have to be an expert in any related or potentially related scientific field to like if you if you see images online if you just were to google it um you can you can see how whatever it is if it is what it purports to be is a not usual uh, image. It's not just like a cloth that, you know, had uh, a human face painted on or, you know, like a rubbing or something. Like, like it's, it's we'll get a, maybe maybe a little bit more into those kinds of things. Not that that's not really the focus of what we want to talk about today. But, um, but like, it, it does appear quite unusual, even just from looking at it. Um, and it very much is... You know, again, if, if you accept that what it purports to be, in fact, is is what it is, that it is um, unlike other, you know, 
objects. It's it's very it's very unique, and that that also adds to its um, its value as far as as far as like Christian devotion and piety to to Christ and his sufferings and burial and resurrection. Like to have to have this artifact that is from you, you know it's it's similar to. Oh, I have you know I have discovered the a piece of the true cross or a thorn from the crown of thorns or the spear mm. that pierced his side or the nails like like which all of these things have been you know at different times and places um, you know relics have been <laughs> or or items have been used as relics that purport to be the nails or the or the wood from the cross etc. Um, but but I do think there's um, Something there, there's some unique aspects about the shroud's history um, that we'll get into, but as far as what it is, um, it it is very interesting to look at, and then um, it's quite it's quite something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. Sorry, this the cat keeps like scratching at the door, so I'm sorry if the that's getting picked up in the background. But um, I thought it'd be interesting before we move on to just sort of like give the dimensions or give like the description of it like to kind of understand what we're dealing with again this is a a a shroud or a a burial cloth burial linens um that have been like lucas said preserved in the cathedral of saint giovanni battista in turin italy um since 1578 um so this this gives the measurements it's it's 14 feet and three inches long and three feet and seven inches wide, and it seems to portray two faint brownish images, those of the back and front of a what they describe as a gaunt, sunken-eyed, five-foot, seven-inch man, as if a body had been laid lengthwise along one half of the shroud, while the other half had been doubled over the head to cover the whole front of the body from face to feet. Which is interesting, we'll get to this, um... I think a little bit later, but that's sort of like giving you the scale, how big this thing is. I mean, 14, 14 inches, um, or sorry, 14 feet and three inches long. That's a, I mean, that's taller. That's a, almost a, a basketball hoop and a half tall, um, and three feet, seven inches wide. So this is a, a big cloth, right? And you might be wondering like, well, where did it come from? Like how long had it been in existence and all? And like, that's a great question because the, at least as far as we know today, um, the shroud didn't emerge historically until about 1354 when it was in the hands of a famed knight. And I'm going to butcher this, but it looks like Geoffrey de Charnay, something to that effect. Um, And then uh, several years later, it went on exhibit um, so it's like for 1300 years, we didn't have this relic and then it suddenly shows up. Like, did you happen to find anything else out about the history or some of the lore behind it? Well, so there's, there's a lot that it, it's immediately every aspect of talking about the shroud becomes very interesting. So I, a few months back, I, I don't remember if it was, if that's when this was posted, but Matt Frad on his Pints with Aquinas podcast slash YouTube channel um, had an extended, um, like if you if you've ever listened to his podcast, you know that most of them are are quite long episodes. I think this was a three three and a half hour episode where he interviewed um, a man whose whose name I, I don't remember, 
um, a, a priest who is an expert in shroud studies. He he. This individual has a PhD in shroud studies, um, and so listening. I I was just fascinated by. I started listening. Was just fascinated by that 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 um, conversation, and they get into so much um, because a he's an expert, and b they're do they're going for hours and hours at a time. So there's a lot that we're just not even going to touch on, let alone stuff that we don't know or that we don't you know aren't aware of and all that kind of stuff um so if this intrigues you and some of the questions or possible answers um are interesting to you i would highly recommend you you just you search for pints with aquinas shroud of turin it'll come up um so the the with that out of the way in terms of like there's more to be said than about any of any aspect because it's a very well studied you know well documented beloved uh, you know historical object that for for 700 years you know has has been documented and studied and and venerated and kept and all these things um there's a lot of really interesting pieces of history and and questions and and developments and all that kind of stuff but i want to pick out a, a few highlights to kind of summarize the historical piece and then we can kind of go from there and talk a little bit more about about what it is or what it isn't and sort of some of the implications of that so it's right around 1350 54 wherever in 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 that range that you have the first like confirmed documented appearance in the historical record that we know of um and for centuries it's kind of moving around europe it's traveling it, it was in this fa- this this knight's family's possessions and then it kind of i through different you know marriages and and deaths it, it it went around to these different aristocratic families and different churches it, and at different times it would be on display in these churches or it would be sort of protected away in a vault somewhere um and all of these sort of showings have have good documentation because it wasn't just like some guy in a church somewhere held up a big cloth and said, this is the burial shroud of Christ. But this was something that, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of people across Western Europe saw, but also kings, nobles, aristocrats, popes, church officials. Um, so the reason that that's interesting and important is just that this is something that is well-documented. This object from 1354 or 1350 on is well documented that it that it is being moved around, displayed. You know, people are claiming that this is what it is. People are treating it as if this is what it is, and that kind of thing. Um, skipping ahead a while, um, you know, and it was during this this time it ended up fi- sort of finding its final home in Turin. Um, but in 1898. The first photograph ever in history was taken of the shroud. And then, which is an interesting sort of historical moment where sort of the the approach to thinking and, and, and studying the shroud changes, right? Because we've kind of entered this new technological age and there's this is when this is sort of a, a marker. In 1902... What's really interesting is there was actually in France there was an an anatomy professor 
who is presenting at, at this, this academic gathering. He's presenting a paper that, that argues that the shroud is truly the burial shroud of Christ. And it's funny, this guy is an agnostic. And then he's brought aside and his paper is, is like shut down. They're like, you have to rewrite it. You know, you, you, this is, this is silly. You can't say this, um, which is interesting. Um, in 1931, um, there, so just, this is just to give an idea of sort of how people are, are thinking during this time in 1931, people are doing experiments with cadavers to see if they can like recreate the, the marks. Like we talked about like stains and, and blood stains and, and the shape, like I, you know, good for them, I guess. I don't know, but, <laughs> um, what's really important and interesting is in 1976, um, this this group came together and they performed along, you know, they, they got all the necessary, you know, approvals and permissions and whatever. And they performed the first, this is 1976, the first in-depth, you know, quote unquote, scientific examination of the shroud. Um, this, they, they were able to do more in 1978. And then in 1989, published in the, the journal Nature, which... If you're aware of nature, you know it is a an, an extremely respected, um, peer-reviewed scientific journal. An article was published there in 1989 that confirmed um, that the shroud is medieval, going back to 1354, about 1350. They got the exact that exact date through carbon dating, um, which sounds like, you know contemporary scientific proof that the shroud is not uh the shroud of jesus because jesus didn't die in the mid 14th century he died in the first century however something very and this this is is an example of the kind of like it's almost like a it's almost like a movie like the kind of twists and turns that it's like you would think something like talking about a piece of cloth could only get so, you know, intriguing, but maybe, maybe I'm, you know, weird or whatever, but, but so in 2005, um, a peer reviewed paper was published. So keep in mind, if we're looking at this from a, from the, you know, contemporary scientific study standpoint, um, this is, this is important, you know, like something being peer reviewed doesn't mean it's good. It's good scholarship or, or something not being peer reviewed doesn't mean it's bad scholarship. But my point is in 1989, there was a peer reviewed paper published that proved the using um, a method of carbon dating that the, the shroud dated to the mid 14th century. In 2005, there was a peer reviewed paper that um, demonstrated that that mid 14th century date it's it was not wrong the piece of the of the shroud that the sample was taken from because you know as they're doing all these scientific examinations it's sort of like um uh when in national treasure when they're wanting to look at the find the map on the back of the declaration of independence like you can't just i think she says something to the effect of you you, you know this is a very old document you can't like just subject it to all kinds of of you know methods of examination without risking destroying it. So think about that 
with something that, you know, <laughs> millions upon millions of, of people, part of the largest religion in the world, globally all hold very, you know, in high regard. Like, they, like these, these, these ex- examinations and research is done in a way to, you know, they have to be done carefully in ways that aren't going to compromise or ruin or destroy um, the shroud itself. So they took a sample from the edge in one corner Um, and the thing is that piece of the cloth is not original. It was a repair made in the air, the exactly the time where the, the carbon dating showed that it came from. And this is actually like, this is not, you know, just believers cope, but it, it, you know, it's that, that repair is, is, I believe like, like documented and it's known that in that part of the shroud around this time frame somebody repaired the shroud with so with linen that dated from the mid 14th century um but the thing is that's the only part of the shroud that has ever actually been carbon dated so Mm. the the journal in the the article in 1989 does not like the the evidence put forward in that article, scientifically speaking, does not conclu- does not conclusively prove that the entire shroud dates from the mid fourteenth century, and that is something that's very very interesting and intriguing. Yeah, <laughs> because that is also something that has been sort of scientifically demonstrated. It has you know so the the jury's still out on as far as like if 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 they were to cut you know cut a portion out of the middle like of the right shroud the face you, or something, you know, like the jury's still out on that. I'm not saying that that's been shown one way or another, but, but the point is you get this kind of, this timeline is really interesting because it kind of shows the way that, that as we move in, moved into the modern era, people really like a lot of time and effort and money um, at the highest sort of academic scientific level um, physicists and anthropologists and um, you know there there's somebody somebody studied like like pollen like they took pollen samples um, and found you know apparently found pollen from plants that only grow in in um, in Palestine or, or something like just like things like that um, where I direct you to go to either that that Pints with Aquinas podcast episode for a lot more detail by someone who knows what they're talking about, or a website that that guy recommends in that podcast episode, which sounds and looks like a fake website, but it's actually not. Um, Shroud.com <laughs> is is the domain for um, sort of the the hub where um, all the latest. Like I got I, this is where I got my my timeline from, and 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 it it sort of collects all the the latest, you know, news or updates or or, yeah. or whatever. And it's a good place to go. They've got links to different, you know, news stories or articles and, and history and timelines and stuff. Shroud.com. It's it sounds fake and it looks very fake if you see the website. It looks like it hasn't been updated since like nineteen ninety eight. But um, there's a lot of good material on there. And so like I'll pause there and, and we can kind of go different ways because um basically like to to potential you know I, I don't know just for the sake of conversation um like especially after after listening to that that um interview with that guy who who 
is a an expert in the shroud um i'm like i'm pretty convinced because there's a lot that goes into as well like trying to recreate the image right like is it is it some kind of pigment that is applied to the cloth as like a dye um is it is it some kind of scorch mark like like he goes in this interview there's a there's a a really fascinating section of the interview where they talk about like different possible sort of methods of that image being applied to the shroud. And he kind of goes through and talks about how a lot of proposed um, like ways that this could have been forged um, don't actually add up and, and, and don't make sense. They can't be reproduced. Um, you know, like, oh, maybe it was some kind, you know, like an early, it, it, there, there's just a lot, there's a lot to it. And I won't say more because I don't want to misspeak and, and mislead people. But um, we'll stop there in terms of like the, the historical timeline. Because the other thing is, is there's a lot more to, I think, more important and more interesting things to talk about than like the history of scientific study on it. But what, what I think is interesting about the the, the, the specific findings and things that people have said who have done these scientific examinations who aren't necessarily interested in proving that the shroud is authentic um, and aren't necessarily, as far as I know, interested in proving it's not authentic, but more approaching it from a truly sort of scientific um, standpoint is just that to me, the, from what I, my limited knowledge and, and what I've heard and read is, is interesting in that there doesn't seem to be any compelling reason for determining that it's, it's, it's a fake or a, a forgery or something like that. Um, not that there's, you know, be all end all conclusion that it is authentic, but um, what's, it's interesting that something so unique has been for decades now pretty intensively studied from the perspective of, you know, modern contemporary scientific technological ways of examining it. And it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't just been shown to be fake, which is interesting if you think it's just some medieval peasant or medieval bishop or whatever um, slapped it together, hired an artist to paint on Jesus's face or something um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, if where you want to take, where you want to take it, um, in terms of sort of thinking through like, why, well, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, do we want to, do we want to talk about why, why would it be real? Why would it be fake or? Yeah. I mean, sure. I, what I find interesting too, is like throughout its history, or at least since it's like recorded history from about 1350 onwards, is like some of the like the people around even then questioning its validity or its authenticity i mean you have popes who very quickly declare that it's not a historic relic um you have this story about like um in 1814 when the hundred years war threatened to spill over into so that jeffrey de charnay whatever um his granddaughter margaret and her husband offered to store the cloth in their castle. And so her husband wrote a receipt for the exchange, acknowledging that the cloth was not Jesus's authentic burial shroud. 
and also promising to return it when it was safe. However, she later refused to return it and instead took it on a tour, advertising that it was real. Um, so even amongst like some of the people that have it and like possessed it until it you know went on display and was sort of um, you know ma- maintained more professionally, there's even like debate about its authenticity. Um, there's there's like in, in in 1453, this Margaret person sold the shroud in exchange for two castles to the royal house of Savoy, um, which ruled over parts of modern day France, Italy, and Switzerland. Um, as punishment for selling the shroud, she received excommunication. Like that's insane. Um, I don't, this this I thought was interesting too. In 1502, the House of Savoy placed the shroud in the Saint Chapel uh, in Chambray. I'm sorry, I don't speak any French, Italian, you know, any of these languages, but part of France. Um, but then, in you know, 30 years later, in 1532, a fire broke out in this chapel. It melted part of the silver in the container protecting the shroud and then this silver fell onto the shroud burning through it and so these burn marks and thus the water stains from where the fire was extinguished are still visible today um so to your point about you know having to repair this thing like yeah like it's traveling it's moving it's a i mean if it is authentic at this point it's a 1300 year old piece of fabric of course it's gonna like fall apart and disintegrate and you need to uh, take measures to to repair and maintain um so like all of that's really interesting i mean you're you're talking about the scientific authenticity of it um one of the things that i just find really fascinating is like what does the bible have to say about this shroud perhaps um and so i go to the gospels of matthew mark and luke which state that joseph of arimathea wrapped the body of jesus in a piece of linen cloth and placed it in a new tomb. Uh, contrary to this, or maybe not contrary, but you know, another way of describing this, John says that that Joseph of Arimathea used strips of linen. Um, it's interesting too. After the resurrection, the Gospel of John says, "Quote: Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head." The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen, uh, end quote. And then the Gospel of Luke says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. So there's even like some difference of of like the recounting of events uh, at the tomb. Um, again, interestingly, when I think about it from a perspective of like, um, sorry, I'm going to let the cat out of the room. To, uh, just give me like three seconds. Lucas, say something. um yeah and 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 just to to keep in mind like like obviously there it's not so much like we're gonna find in the bible oh and the shroud of turin was you know created was but let's assume that this is his burial shroud that means it is mentioned in the gospel account so so it's 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 quite interesting and important (laughs) to to um to take a look at at the the way that it's described or, or just the way that the burial is described. Um, so just like it, in case someone's wondering like, yeah, well, that's not talk, you know, like obviously the focus of the story in Jesus's burial and resurrection is not the linen. It's Jesus's resurrection, but it does, right. it is, it is mentioned. So I, you like, it is, it is, um, it is, it is helpful 
Like that is, that is the starting point because if, if you take it as authentic, it that's where it starts is, yeah. is Joseph of Arimathea receiving his body and, and prepping it for burial. And you have to imagine too, like think of this like in a, in, we have the benefit of like 2000 years of church history and like being very well acquainted with the, the resurrection account. But you have to imagine from the perspective of the people that were there, like think of it this way like you're like the guy you've been following for several years was just crucified he was killed you hear this report that like he's possibly resurrected so you go to the tomb where you just buried him days ago and all you find are linen cloths lying there like first of all you don't i don't i mean maybe they had some like frame of reference for this but like if i'm imagining this i don't think i have a frame of reference for like oh yes jesus is resurrected he has like a a renewed uh, uh, eternal body, never to see decay ever again. You're probably thinking like his body was stolen. Something happened. Like something is afoot. Your first thought isn't probably like, whoa, the fabric of, uh, pun intended, the fabric of life as we know it has just been dramatically altered in time and space. Um, And so, yeah, you'd probably like, man, like our Lord was taken or stolen or his body's missing like i'm gonna keep these cloths as like perhaps the only thing i'm ever gonna have from him ever again and so that could be if we're trying to like talk about its validity and uh its survival for two thousand years is like who knows maybe peter maybe mary maybe mary magdalene like who who knows who or when or why the cloth was taken if in fact this is authentic um but that's sort of like Again, you have if we're thinking sort of around the stories that we know, that that could be a plausible explanation for what happened. Um, thinking historically, right? Um, we're talking about things that happened, uh, uh, you know, surrounding the shroud. We're talking about thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred. What are some of the things taking place during that time? Well, there's a whole reformation taking place in this part of the world, quite literally. So I was like, I wonder what people said about it from that era. So think of like Luther, Calvin, etc. And I actually found Calvin in his book, uh, Treatise on Relics. He explained the reason why the shroud cannot be gen- genuine. So this is this is a full quote. Um, I'll, I'll say end quote when I'm done. But it's interesting to sort of hear like from the perspective of a contemporary um, this is John Calvin saying, quote, In all the places where they pretend to have grave cloths, they show a large piece of linen by which the whole body, including the head, was covered. And accordingly, the figure exhibited is that of an entire body. But the evangelist John relates that Christ was buried, quote, as in the manner of the Jews to bury, end quote. What that manner was may be learned not only from the Jews by whom it is still observed, but also from their books, which explain that the ancient pra- or explain what the re- ancient practice was. It was this: the body was wrapped up by itself as far as the shoulders, and then the head by itself was bound round with a napkin tied by the four corners into a knot. And this is expressed by the evangelist when he says that Peter saw the linen cloths in which the body had been wrapped lying in one place and the napkin which had been wrapped around the head lying in another. The term napkin may mean either a handkerchief employed to wipe the face, or it may even mean a shawl, but never means a large piece of linen in which the whole body may be wrapped. 
I have, however, used the term in the sense which they improperly give to it. On the whole, either the evangelist John must have given a false account, or every one of them must be convicted of falsehood, thus making it manifest that they have too impudently imposed on the unlearned, end quote. Um, so like, again, John Calvin, a contemporary, someone living in, about, and around these these happenings, writes a, a book or a treatise on relics, and he talks about this shroud and more or less like denies its authenticity. And, and you know, take John Calvin in any way you want. I mean, for all we know, John could certainly be wrong. Like, what I found fascinating, and I, I wanted to do more research on this, but just, like, didn't have the the time. But, like, perhaps this could be a whole other episode in and of itself. But, like, ancient burial practices. Like, if if John is right, and, like, the the, the ancient Israelites, like, if this was their, their practice to sort of bury up to the shoulder, or not bury, but, like, wrap up to the shoulders in, like, strips of linen, and then to put, like, a... A, a different singular cloth over the face and then tie it. Like, if that is the case, then that's different from what we have with the shroud. But Jesus was also different than your average person. So perhaps, you know, this is, I mean, we've talked about this on air before, but like the fact that like Jesus is buried where he's buried is like a bit unusual in and of itself. Um, so like perhaps like such an occasion called for a practice that differed from the norm. I mean, I don't know. I'm just, again, trying to work with, like, what John is saying here and trying to understand, like, how this perhaps could be authentic. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you have, like, thoughts on that. It's interesting because I'm, like, obviously, I, like, that's not something that John Calvin has been the only person to question or think about before. So I'm sure, I'm sure there have been, pl- like, pages and pages and pages written about why this does or doesn't match what was probably the way he was buried based on, you know, the time period and the area where he died and all these things. And I just don't know. I just don't know. Um, it, it would, it would seem pretty difficult to like, like if, if there is a clear answer to like what the Jewish burial practice was in the first century in Palestine. And it was something that we could clearly, you know, document and demonstrate that it that it does not match um, the cloth that you know this fourteen by three foot cloth used, um, or that is the shroud. Um, it it would seem pretty difficult for me to square. Like, well, then then you know, I, I don't know how old it is, but it doesn't seem to be what was used to bury him. But but then the question remains: Well, the image is there. And it's up to this point, you know, no alternative explanation that I've come across has been given that actually makes sense other than miraculous, you know, whatever, Um, which that doesn't mean it's Jesus. Miracles happen to all kinds of people. But the point being like it it, it, to me, I I, I get stuck on the the character of the image itself because... um, Evidently, the way that this image is imprinted, the way that it is on the shroud or in the shroud is so unexplainable based on like just your typical kinds of explanations. If you were to think about how you would go about making this as a hoax or how this could accidentally happen in 
under certain circumstances. Um, it just uh, seems from my, un, you know, relatively uneducated and, and just sort of receiving information from other sources that I've, that I have, like it, it seems unexplainable, which is, is, is not a reason to just say that it's, that it is this particular conclusion, but just, it's just something, something to think about where it's like, yeah, does this match what we know about ancient Jewish burial practices? And if the answer is no, like that's a, that's, you really got to think about, well, what do you do with that? Is that the nail in the coffin? Oh, it might be. (laughs) And then it's like, okay, well, what about, what about the fat? Like this image exists on this piece of fabric. So it's like, oh, well, what do we do with, you know, there's just, this is why I say it's such an interest, like every aspect to me, every aspect comes across like there, there are, there are forks in the road, there are twists and turns, there are unexpected questions and unexpected answers. And so it's really interesting. And the sort of the, the, the question I wanted to like lead to with this conversation is, and stop me if you have, if you have more you want to say about, about where we're at, but it's sort of like the implications of like, like, like let's, let's say like not not because I'm I think this is like the only possible answer or the only plausible answer, but let's say this is the shroud that Jesus was buried in. That is his image on the you know left on the shroud that was somehow implanted there by some interaction of the shroud with the miraculous event of the resurrection. And it has been preserved through different hands in ways that we don't know prior to 1350. And then since then, and it sits now in Turin in Italy and, and all these things. And you can go see it whenever it's on display or, or I, I don't, I don't know if they still display it, but um, like sit like sitting here, not as, you know, Roman Catholic apologists, not as people who have ever visited Italy I don't think you've I've never visited I don't think you have like never even been there let alone been there to see you know just just sort of thinking about it like for 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 us sitting here like I think the interesting question is so okay so given all of that what are the implications and I have I have some thoughts but I want to kick it to you first because because I asked the question so I can do that so like what do you think like like and I I don't necessarily mean like it doesn't need to be earth-shattering but just like Kind of like <laughs> o- almost off the dome, like like sort of like what mm-hmm. do you think? Like just like what does that imply? What does it mean? If it is real, is it yeah. What you're like say say it's fully authentic. Like you're convinced of that. Like does does it matter? Like what are the implications of it? I'm curious. I mean, number one, we've determined the exact height of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which is I mean on one hand pretty incredible, five foot seven. Um, shorter than you and I. So in glory, we will be, if, if in fact we have the bodies we have today, you and I will stand several inches above Jesus Christ, which is like of little actual significance, but just like an interesting fact of the world. Um, I, I, there's, I, I say that a little tongue in cheek, um, a little peek behind the curtain, Lucas and I are in the process of reading a book, um, one that we will interview the author before too long. And I'm currently making my way through the rest of the book. And I'm just like struck by, um, again, the reality that like God put on human flesh, that, that man, that Adam, who is of the earth, Adama, like we are, we are literally of this 
planet, of the substance, of the everything you see, we are in some same way like of that, like God himself put on that flesh. And I was reminded in reading this book, I was reminded of the tabernacle because there's that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning he quite literally tabernacled with us. And that language of tabernacle, what was the tabernacle made of? But like the, 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 like the skins, the, the, the fabric of animals. So like God has literally since Genesis has dwelt inside of the, the very fabric, the flesh, the, the, the body of this world. Um, and so in our, in our fallen, in our fallen sinful world, et cetera, et cetera, um, God is making all things new. He's, he's renewing the cosmos. And, and in the end, it, like it, the culmination where we're re- reunited with our savior, where we'll see him face to face, his five foot seven inch face. Um, like, what does the shroud have to do with this? Well, I mean, like if nothing else, on the one hand, it's like further evidence that like a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed, um, which I know has been like, proven that he was a real man um despite some recent online like postings otherwise there's you're not on twitter right now so there's been this like article or this whatever where a guy claims that jesus never existed um which again historically speaking is just untrue um regardless of what the shroud is or isn't um but i guess the if i'm thinking through your question the shroud it lends more credence and evidence to that fact that he was in fact a real man um, two, interestingly, um, sorry, all of you that have a problem with like second command, is it second commandment violations? Like where no image should be, be produced. Like you quite literally have an image of the face of Christ post resurrection or mid resurrection. I don't know, like depending on how, what you think the shroud is like, again, if you have to imagine, right, like we've had. Now, one episode on Holy Saturday that's been uploaded like three times and it, you guys you guys listen to it and you love it. Um, but like what we talk about in that episode is like what happens between Holy Friday or um, sorry, uh, Good Friday and Holy Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And then we have Holy Saturday. So like what happens when Christ descends into hell? And then what happens when he is raised from that, when he is raised from the place of the dead? We don't know. It's not like we've ever been told or seen like was it like when he re-entered his physical form, like was there like a sudden like bursting of light that like, again, physically burned his his face, his imprint onto the shroud, onto the linen? I don't know. I mean, it would seem to make logical sense to me. Um, but it's like we have, if the shroud is in fact authentic, like s- some representation of a face. Um, like I think we touched on this, but if you look up the shroud of Turin, you can, you can obviously see the actual shroud itself, which is like a sepia colored linen. But then that photograph you mentioned from the 1890s or 1898, like that is a photo negative. And for some reason, when using the photo negative, it like brings out the features of this face far more prominently, um, you know, showing the, the jawline, the cheekbones, the sunken eyes, the like, I think... On that, I think in that Matt Fred interview with the expert, he yeah. says that a, a curious feature of the image is that it actually is a photo negative. So when we're looking, when we mm. take a photo and look at the negative, it's like if you, if you take a, you're looking, you're looking at the photo negative of a photo negative. So it, 
you can you can see it more clearly. I think I think that's I right. I don't know for okay. sure, but that's just to that point. It is a lot more. Um, uh, you can really see it more in the in the negative uh, image than in the like actual picture of the of the exactly. um, of the cloth. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean to like sort of bring all those thoughts together. It's just like it, it, if nothing else, it's just like a fascinating piece or i mean i can use the term relic um but like a fascinating artifact of history that like a shroud um would have been not only found but preserved for two thousand years um even the fact that it's lasted 1300 years is incredible when you think about some of the other things that have not made it that far um and so like when i and this is this was going to be the question i posed to you like do you find it to be authentic do you think it's inauthentic um, I don't know exactly where I land. I the like curious like uh, aliens, monsters, like Bigfoot, like that side of me is like I want it to be super real. I want it to have been preserved for two thousand years. Um, I don't. I, I'm actually not like entirely swayed by the evidence one way or another. But just the the part of me that like is attracted to awe and wonder and like those things which are sort of outside of our understanding, like that those parts of me want me to think that it's real. Um, what I think is interesting too is like regardless of if it's real or fake, um, like we have preserved it for so long, um, and it's like I, I wonder why. Like part of me wonders like if it could have been co- proved conclusively even back when it was like you know in Calvin's day that it was fake, then why even try to preserve it? What would be the purpose? I mean, if it's like pilgrimage type thing where it's just like we have this thing that was quite literally on the body of Christ, come pay money to see it. Well, that that's pretty nefarious. And it's like, those people probably like, <laughs> didn't have good intentions for, for wanting to preserve it. But like, what is the point of preserving it today? What is the point of like all the scientific research and endeavors that go into it? Like, is it simply like at this point, it's become bigger than anything it could have ever been. And so now it's just a, a piece of like interesting debate. I mean, we're here talking about it today. So it's of some just like historic value merely. Um, I don't know. So all those things in my mind like lead me to think it is real. It is authentic. I don't understand all of what that means. I don't think I have to. Um, But does it have like bearing on my faith or my salvation? No. I mean, it's just interesting, which is I think I think so much of our world is like we we've lost the ability to wonder. And this is perhaps a whole separate conversation in and of itself, man. But like, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately is like in our, in our social media, um, smart technology, think of all the advancements with like artificial intelligence. Um, Like we're connected to a device that has unending possibilities so to speak i can i can access any piece i i looked up the shroud of turin on my phone and got seven thousand hits on different websites and videos and articles that i could go look at from my phone in the middle of wisconsin even a hundred years ago to like to try to tell somebody that i was able to do that work on my own i'm just some random dude in the middle of nowhere i am not a shroud expert like the guy on that podcast right So, like, because we have this literally unfettered access to information, um, whether it be fact or fiction, we have access to it. I think it has taken away a lot of our uh, our sense of wonder, 
our sense of the the majesty and grandeur of the world, the cosmos. Like the the more that we try to pick apart and understand things, the less wonderful I think they can become. You know, like there's something about outer space, the vastness, the unknown, the the, or even to put it more like earthbound, the, the oceans, you know, this past week, we've had this whole thing about this submarine. And like, I've seen different renderings of like the, the different depths of like lakes and seas and oceans. And it's staggering. It is mind bending. It is like anxiety inducing. I don't want to know more about it. I don't want to go there to look at it. I want to stay as far away with awe and wonder and appreciation at like, yeah, it's there, but like, I have no interest in going any further. And I think in some way, like the shroud uh, almost has like a similar thing. Like I would, I don't want to like break it apart bit by bit and understand it scientifically. Cause like whether it's real or not, that doesn't change who I am today. It doesn't change my faith. It doesn't change anything like at the end of the day. So those are my like musings, my ramblings, like, uh, points of application one regain your sense of wonder people like go back to a world i mean it's impossible at this point in reality but like try rebel uh like do what you can to like regain senses of wonder you don't have to understand everything um two the shroud of turin i think is authentic i don't need to give my explanations of why i think we've kind of touched and hovered on them um and three like regardless uh, of how authentic this thing might be christ is real christ lived died went to went to the place of the dead resurrected ascended and that flesh that i mentioned earlier that that human form the 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 dust of the earth is in heaven with yahweh so like what the, the man and god have been united quite literally and that's like a foretaste of what's to come. So it's like, th- those are the things that matter. Everything else is just like a nice bit along the way, a nice window into the divine. Um, I think that's the bigger thing that like Christ became, a, like that God became a man in Christ, died, died, and was resurrected and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if we have that shroud, super cool. If we don't, doesn't change the fact of reality as we know it. So I don't know. What are your thoughts as we sort of hover out of this place? Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, I, I think it's authentic um, sort of to, to sum up uh, all the things that I've read and heard about it. And then what we've, what we've talked about um, today, like I would just say, yeah. And I think the implications of that, like there, there's, there, there's a lot that's sort of connected to it, like something we might talk about on a future conversation, um, like the idea of relics in general, like 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 their their use or 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 you know, the the appropriate or inappropriateness um, of their use and all that kind of stuff. Like that's obviously related to this because saying that it's authentic or not authentic, kind of you know ascribes to it relic or non-relic status so so there's that sort of like side note that that i that comes to mind but isn't directly connected to it being authentic but for me yeah like i think there's there's a very interesting um to look at an image of it taking it as authentic to look at an image of it does provide um there there's there's a 
close like a a level of connection to the crucifixion um that sort of a almost like a more real um version of how i felt when i was in like sixth grade or whenever and i watched the passion of the christ and it was like this first moment where i had any sort of like you know mental sort of awareness of the reality of of that event so an event i was very familiar with at that point and it's sort of it's a similar thing where um because it's the burial shroud it, you, you know like we've we've touched we've said we've said like you know the existence of it is probably has some relationship to the resurrection but the image of what it is you know the the imprint of the bloody body of jesus like on his burial shroud it's very it's very much a cruciform relic if we if we're speaking of it that way um so for me i think i think sort of it 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 conjures up reflections on um the crucifixion uh which is very you know powerful uh if if you find yourself in those moments where like you know, like, especially on Good Friday and Good Friday services, it's, it's, it's obviously like a very effective service, um, because what the the focus and reflection on the crucifixion is such a, um, can be such an emotionally like challenging and intense sort of, uh, thing to focus on. But so there, there's that aspect of it for me. Um, and I, I I like the, the connection that you bring out to just like, like if you look at a picture of it or you go and see it and you just you just you accept that it's real for whatever reason, then it's sort of like by doing so to look at a picture of it is just to be sort of reconnected to the miraculous, to the the wonderful, to the awful, to the um, super or supranatural, um, because if you if you take it to be real and authentic and then you look at it, it's like, wow. Like, like what you, to what you were saying, like it's, it is this, this sort of like your face, face to face with, um, with the miraculous, you know, and not just in terms of the fact that it's, it's, you know, the face of the incarnate Lord following his crucifixion where he paid for the sins of the world and his resurrection where he defeated death, you know, but also just like the, like we've said a couple times, just the, the fact that it is such a such an unexplainable image itself. Um, even if it's some other dead man, like the image itself is kind of a, 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 you know, evidence of a miracle just because like seemingly it shouldn't be on the shroud the way it is. So, but, but to take it as authentic, I think, I think those are sort of the more direct implication, like the more like personal implications, like you're saying, like, in terms of like doctrine or, or, or how I practice my faith. Like, of course it's, you know, if I lived in Turin and it was on display, that might, might have more practical implications, but, um, but I think personally, those are more the implications. And then, and then I think, I think there's, there's more sort of a, a, a follow-up to this conversation that we may have that I'd like to have at some point, who knows when would be a conversation about, about relics more generally, because I think that has a little bit more, like there's more to be said in the, in the, in the, so what section, I feel like there's more to be said that has to do with 
what do you do with a relic to begin with? Um, and then applying that to, well, what do you do with the shroud? <laughs> if it's, if, you know, depending on what your view of relics are, the shroud is pretty, it's a pretty big deal, you know, or, or maybe, maybe not so much, but, um, but that's maybe a, that's maybe a different, a different episode for a different day. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's super interesting. I would recommend that, that, um, website shroud.com, that episode on the, on Matt Frad's podcast with, I forget should have looked up his name so I could recommend it, but um, it's a really interesting conversation and there's a bajillion things that we haven't even touched on that we, we couldn't even touch on if we wanted to. So like if this was, if any part of this episode was interesting, like follow up because we have like, this is true of any topic, but it's really true of this topic. We have not even scratched the surface of like getting to the bottom of it. So if you're interested, like, dive deeper because there's a lot more to talk about um with regards to it so this was yeah yeah. and i just had one final thought and then you can close us out of here and it's like you might be wondering on a podcast like ours like we call ourselves the doxology podcast right doxology being like a, a, a song of praise singing praises honoring our lord whatever um like how does this you know how does this play into something like even an episode on holy saturday which very much has theological implications like it's it on the surface it might feel like something like the shroud of turin doesn't you know doesn't have a bunch of um theological implication but i i think it does i think i think in a way um you know we 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 live in a world where we where we where we become so familiar with the things around us, you know, we become familiar with a story like the resurrection. We be, we become familiar with the, the story of Easter. Like how sad the reality that we've become familiar with the greatest event in human history that we're like, it doesn't, it, it's, in some way it's lost its meaning. It's lost its importance on so many of us. Um, and this is, this is just like purely anecdotal, but I was thinking the other day, like, do you remember like perhaps when you were a kid or maybe this still happens, but like you go to somebody else's house and like somebody else's house sort of like has a different aroma than your own. And then you like go back to your house and this, this, again, this is just silly and goofy, but I promise I'm going somewhere. Like I had been somewhere. I don't even remember where, but I had been somewhere this week. And when I came back to our house, I was like, this is like what our house smells like. Cause like normally when you come home, like you're just used to it. Like it's your space, your place, your, your, your senses are attuned to it such that you, you sort of forget. Right. Um, and so that, that like started me thinking on all these ways in which familiarity breeds comfort in a way. Like when we become familiar, we become comfortable, we become complacent, or in some senses we ignore like, I have to imagine that, like, my nose smells what's going on around me, but, like, the the amount of time that, like, I've been around it, it's, like, not triggering the sensory reaction that, like, oh, like, the pizza just came out of the oven and I can smell the aroma of the pizza and then it eventually dissipates. Like, the smell of your house is probably all, always there, but, like, your brain just chooses not to, like, automatically prompt you or make you think about it very often. And so, in similar ways, how do we do that theologically? How do we theologically become complacent? How do we theologically become comfortable with our surroundings? Um, and my my challenge is to like not let that be the case, to not become complacent in any sense of the word, um, especially when it comes to our theology. Um, and so my point is like, maybe you know about the shroud. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen it, whatever. Maybe you've studied it, maybe not. But like, 
dig like like Lucas said, dig deep on any topic. Like dig deep, dig the, dig deep theologically to like not just have a knowledge in your head, but to like have an impacted heart that like actually goes out and like does good in the world that like again isn't complacent isn't comfortable but is like living the the radical um call to self-denial and love of neighbor um so anyway that's all lucas take us out yeah for sure um well this was a good one i mean i say that a lot i know and i even when i don't say it like i think it but like this is one of those ones that's just like super fun to me so thank you for for sitting down and chatting with me. Thank you for listening to you, dear listeners, to uh, any episode, but but especially today, this one of our Doxology podcast. And we would love to hear back for um, from you for feedback or ideas for future episodes or questions about um, questions for us or about us, I guess, or about our um, topic today thoughts sparked from this conversation etc etc we are always available by email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com and somewhat relatively more sporadically on social media at doxologypodcast um, regardless we appreciate your your attention and, and listening and we uh, appreciate your support and we'd love to hear from you and until next time we'll see you. trust god cast lots my dudes